Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Our scripture reading this morning will be found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 3. We will read verses 1 through 20. I will read the first verse, and you will read the second one, and continue with me every other verse. Would you please stand as we read these verses? That's Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate began being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea, and of the great region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, and tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priest, the word of God came unto him, John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough way shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generations of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth, therefore, fruit worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to rise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the tree, Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewed down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do? He answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages." And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, 
but one mightier than I cometh, the latcher of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. He shall be tied you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the shaft he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproached by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evil which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he may shut up John in prison. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are glad to be here today to hear get spiritual food. We love you. We love hearing about you. We ask that your blessing be upon the pastor, that he delivers his message, not by his word, but by your words being imparted in him, that he may speak the words that are true. Thank you, Father, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. You may be seated. Marvin. No, you're good. This morning, <clears throat> we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, in the first two chapters, just to kind of recap, we've seen the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. In there, it's kind of like a movie where it pans back from character to character, kind of showing the storyline of their life. And uh, last week, we looked at Luke's account of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. And now here in chapter 3, uh, Luke fast-forwards 18 years to where Jesus and John are both around uh, 30 years of age. Remember, John is just uh, six months older than Jesus, so they're both around 30 years of age. Luke begins this section by giving us a detailed list of the rulers of that period in history. We notice this starting in verse 1, where Luke writes, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, uh, that would be the emperor over Rome, uh, Caesar Augustus uh, had passed away at this point in time, and so Tiberius Caesar was reigning over the, the whole Roman Empire. Uh, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being governor of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Traconitis, uh, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And so uh, Luke mentions four tetrarchs in these verses who were sort of like petty kings that were appointed by Rome to rule over uh, sections of Israel. So Herod the Great was the ruler over all of Israel uh, when Jesus was born. He's the one, you remember, that uh, tried to slaughter Jesus by killing all the babies in Bethlehem, that Herod. Uh, he has died at this point. He dies when Jesus was a child, and so his, his uh, kingdom is split among his children. That's why it's split into four sections, so each of his sons could rule. And Herod mentioned in this passage is, is not Herod the Great, it's his son Herod Antipas. And he's going to be the Herod that uh, later on accuses Jesus and, uh, and mocks him during his trial and so forth. And so uh, before Herod's death, Herod the Great, he had asked Rome to split up his kingdom to allow each of his sons to rule. And one of Herod's sons, Archelaus, was removed by Rome because of his cruelty, which is really saying something considering his dad was Herod the Great, uh, who is known for his cruelty, but his son apparently outdid him. So he was, he was uh, taken out of his position. Another one had passed away at this point. And so two of his sons remained in power. You have Philip mentioned here uh, and Herod Antipas. They're the ones that are uh, Herod the Great's children. And then Pontius Pilate and, and uh, Lysanias were unrelated 
related. Pontius Pilate, of course, you, you'd recognize probably as uh, the one who sentenced Jesus to death eventually. And so Luke also mentions in verse 2 that Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. And this uh, should catch you off guard a little bit because normally there's only one high priest. So why are there two mentioned here? Well, uh, basically Caiaphas was the actual high priest at this time. He was the one approved by Rome. Uh, but Annas was the former high priest who was really just still hanging on to power. Uh, and at this point in time, the high priesthood in the temple was basically a mafia family. They were very corrupt. It was very financially motivated. Uh, they had certain ways of, of making money. For instance, uh, it was not allowed. You weren't allowed to bring your temple tax called the tithe. You weren't allowed to bring that uh, in Roman currency because it has Caesar's face on it. That was considered idolatrous. And so you had to pay your temple tax in Jewish currency which means you had to get it exchanged. And so uh, there were money changers in the temple that would take your Roman currency and give you Jewish currency so that you could pay your temple tax. Well, they charged a hefty surcharge, basically whatever they wanted. Uh, in addition, they, you, know, you had to bring a lamb to sacrifice to the temple, and the lamb would be inspected <coughs> by the high priests and by those that they, they set up for this. They would inspect the lamb looking for any sort of blemish or flaw. And if they found anything, they would, uh, they would basically tell you, you, you can't offer that lamb, you're going to have to buy one from us. And, uh, and so they, they had all sorts of ways of making money. It was a very corrupt system. This is why Jesus, of course, you know the story, he comes into the temple uh, with a whip and he drives out the money changers and he, he says, you guys have made this a den of thieves because it was such a corrupt uh, system. And Annas and Caiaphas were at the top of this scheme. So why does Luke give all these details? Maybe as we read this, uh, you're wondering, why in the world does he, he mention each of these specific rulers? And I think the primary reason was to give us an exact time frame for when this account takes place so that no one can mistake the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus as merely fables. Uh, Luke is telling us that this is real history. Uh, this happened at a specific point in time. And he doesn't just say, uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far away. No, he tells us exactly where it happened, and he tells us exactly when it happened. In the 15th year of Tiberius, uh, here were the rulers over certain sections. All of these details uh, point to the historicity of these accounts. The Gospels, certainly Luke's Gospel, cannot be mistaken for a moral story about a person who never really lived. They make the claim that these are true accounts of the life of Jesus as it really happened at a specific point in history. And so after giving us the setting, Luke moves on to the story of John the Baptist. And John was living in the desert when a message from God came to him. You remember we left off talking about John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 80, uh, where it says that he was living in the deserts. And so uh, John apparently spent most of his life uh, in the deserts of Samaria, uh, really out, out of the normal life of the people. He was sort of a, a strange bird, you might say, that people kind of looked at and wondered, what's up with him? Uh, the Gospels tell us he ate locusts uh, with, with honey. That was his, his, his food. He dressed in a camel's hair. Uh, he was just kind of a strange old prophet living out in the desert, away from uh, society. And so here at this point, he receives instructions from God, and then he begins to preach. And I want to talk a little bit about John the Baptist before we get into his message at the beginning of the text. So we're going to jump around a little bit this morning, and we're not going to work straight through it like we normally do. We're going to start in verse 15. We're going to ask the question, who is John? Verse 15 says, as the people were in expectation 
And all mused in their, all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. So people were waiting for the Messiah. And they were wondering if John was it. Uh, John was a very powerful uh, preacher and prophet. Uh, All of Jerusalem, uh, the Bible says, came out to hear him preach, and many were baptized uh, by him. And so they started to wonder, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the promised one who would come. In verse 16, John dispels with these thoughts by saying, uh, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh. The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So who is John? Well, John's not the Messiah, not even close. Uh, John says, I baptize you with water. Anybody can do that. There's somebody coming later who's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And he says of of Jesus, I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandal. That was the lowliest task of a slave. And John says, I'm not even worthy for that. I mean, Jesus is so superior to me that it would be a privilege beyond my worth to untie his shoes. So John the Baptist is certainly not the Messiah, but he is the forerunner to Christ, the one who would prepare uh, people for his arrival and point people to him. And we see in verse 16, he's pointing people to Christ. He says uh, back in, in verse 16 that one's coming who's mightier than himself, and he, Jesus, will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that's just speaking of uh, Jesus' judgment. We know Jesus at the, end of the, <clears throat> at the end of the world, Jesus will judge each one of us. We'll get into that more later. But uh, those who are, are his followers are immersed in the Holy Spirit. That happens at Pentecost. And those who, who reject Jesus' message and, and refuse to repent and follow him, uh, they will be judged eternally in, in fire. And so that's, that's what he's mentioning here, that he's going to, you're either going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit or you'll be immersed in fire. In verse 17, he continues to talk about Jesus saying, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Again, uh, that that the, the, the different uh, roads you can take. You accept Jesus, you're gathered into his storehouse, you reject Jesus, and you're cast into fire. And the word fan there is, is an old English word. It basically means a winnowing fork. We might think of a pitchfork uh, that people would, would separate the wheat from the chaff with this, uh, with this shovel, basically. They'd uh, dig into the wheat and they'd throw it up into the air and the heavier wheat would fall and the lighter chaff would, would blow away in the wind. And so they'd collect that and burn it. And so Jesus, as judge, is, uh, is going to discern between the wheat and the chaff. And notice, John says he will thoroughly purge the field. Uh, Jesus is the perfect judge. He's not going to make a mistake in judgment. Uh, you might be able to fool me. You might be able to fool a lot of people. Jesus knows your heart. And Jesus will judge uh, accurately. So this, this was the coming judgment that John preached. John was a forerunner to Christ. He told everyone that Jesus was coming, and then he prepared people for his arrival. And this is exactly what's said of him in the Old Testament in Isaiah and Malachi. And in verse uh, 4 of our text, Luke quotes from Isaiah and says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's John, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Isaiah had prophesied that before the Messiah comes, a prophet would come preaching in the desert and preparing the way for the coming king. 
It's sort of like uh, if a king was coming to town, uh, they'd want to make sure everything was, it was ready for him to have an easy arrival. They'd uh, clear out a highway for him to enter into their town. And that's what John does. He prepares people's hearts for the coming of Christ. He tells them the Messiah is coming and how they can be ready for him. We'll get to that in a minute. So first of all, John was not the Messiah. He was the forerunner to the Messiah. And then next, John was a baptizer. When we see this at the beginning of the chapter where it mentions this, uh, John the Baptist, as he's known, that's not a denominational uh, distinction. He wasn't a, a Baptist preacher. Uh, Baptist is simply a term that means he was a baptizer. People s- saw him and said, oh, that's John the, the baptizer or John the Baptist. And as you're uh, likely aware, he shares his middle name with famous men like Alexander the Great and Winnie the Pooh. But... Anyway, John the Baptist. So uh, he, he was known as a guy who baptized people. He really introduced baptism to the people. This, this was not a thing in Judaism. People didn't get baptized in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, but the only parallel that, that we might have is a ritual washing that was done to proselytes. So if you're a non-Jew, if you're a Gentile, uh, and you wanted to become a Jew... You could basically, you could do that through following the Jewish laws, but prior to that, uh, you had to have a, a ritualistic cleansing where you'd go into a pool of water and it symbolized that uh, you recognized your uncleanness as a Gentile and you wanted to, to serve the true God of Israel. And so uh, you'd go in, in through this ritualistic kind of baptism. And so this may be what John is, is doing here. He's, but, but what's shocking to people in, in our text is that uh, John is not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. And so to Jews, basically, they're having to admit, I'm no better than a Gentile. I need to be cleansed too. I'm not special just because I'm a descendant of Abraham or uh, of Isaac or Jacob. I need cleansing personally. And so by telling Jews to be baptized, John was basically saying, you're no better than the pagan Gentiles. Your sinful heart needs cleansing too. And that leads us to John's message. Back to, to verse 3. John's message was very simple. Uh, He says he came into all the country about Jordan, that's the Jordan River, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John's message was repent and be baptized. It was a very simple, straightforward message. John was telling people how they could receive forgiveness of sins. That's at the end of verse 3. And so that leads us to two very important questions that are highly debated in Christianity. Uh, First of all, do you have to repent to have your sins forgiven? That's question number one. And then number two, do you have to be baptized to have your sins forgiven? Those are the two questions that we'll try to answer this morning. And we'll take each of those one at a time. First, repentance. Uh, What does it mean to repent? The most basic definition of repentance is a change of mind, or maybe we would say a change of heart. It's a turning, it's an inside uh, decision to change. And in the context of salvation, repentance is turning from sin to God. And this was not a new message. God had always demanded that people repent if they would receive forgiveness and cleansing from their sins. The Jews would have been familiar with this. They had heard this message from their prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, Take Isaiah, for instance. Isaiah 1.16 says, Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
Again in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Uh, Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And that's that's biblical repentance, turning from uh, your sinful ways, your sinful thinking to God. Again, in Ezekiel uh, 18, the prophet says again, when, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed, he shall surely live and shall not die. Yet, uh, yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways. Notice it's individual. Each one of you will be judged according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so that iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, or in light of that, turn yourselves and live ye. So when John the Baptist begins preaching to people that they need to repent to have their sins forgiven, this was not a new message. This was consistent with the teachings of the prophets all throughout the Old Testament. And so there's some in, in, in Christian circles today that uh, deny this reality. They think that, that you can be saved without repenting. Maybe, maybe you just have to believe uh, the gospel, pray a prayer, uh, something like that, and, and you're a Christian. Become a member of a church, be baptized, and, you're, and you're, a, you're a Christian. You're going to heaven. Your sins are forgiven. You don't need to repent. But the, the teaching throughout the Bible is consistent. Repentance is an essential element of true conversion. No repentance, no forgiveness. Without repentance, there is no salvation. And so... Here in our text, John the Baptist is telling people they must repent to have their sins forgiven. And he expounds on this further in the following verses, as we'll see. This was John's message. If you read the the parallel accounts of John the Baptist in the other Gospels, he's always preaching about repentance. He's always telling people uh, there's judgment coming and you must turn from your sins to receive forgiveness. And Jesus taught the same thing. We'll see this over and over in the Gospel of Luke. But one particular place where it's crystal clear is Luke chapter 13, where Jesus says, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. People have come to him and asked him about uh, an accident that had happened. A tower had fallen on some people and killed them. And uh, they asked Jesus, What do you think about this? Were they worse sinners? Is that why they died? And he said, No, unless you repent, you're going to perish as well. Uh, That was the lesson that Jesus took from tragedies, that death is coming for everybody. By the way, uh, I think of tragedies um, that happen in our world today. Nobody dies of a tragedy in our world today that wasn't going to die eventually anyway. Maybe they died a little earlier, but everybody's going to die. It's the great equalizer. Everyone in this room will see death. And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. So is repentance necessary for salvation? John the Baptist says yes. Jesus says yes. This was also the message of the apostles, that uh, those disciples who preached about Jesus' death and resurrection after he had left. You remember in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter, Peter preaches to a crowd of people about Jesus, and he tells them that he was the Messiah, and they feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.37 says, when they heard this, that's the, the sermon, the preaching of Peter, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Sound familiar? That's the exact message of John the Baptist. It hasn't changed. So is repentance needed for salvation? John says yes. Jesus says yes. Peter says yes. And this is to be our message as well. By the way, uh, the message of repentance for the remission of sins, this was the reason Jesus came. In Luke 5, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When Jesus sends out the disciples before his ascension, he gave them these instructions in the last chapter of Luke. Luke 24 says, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be our message as well. This is what we're supposed to preach to the world, that if they repent, they can have their sins forgiven. And I can't resist adding just one more person to our list of witnesses that repentance is indeed needed for salvation. That's Acts 16. Uh, sorry, Acts 17. Paul is presenting the gospel in Athens on Mars Hill, uh, the Areopagus in, in Greece. And he's, he's concluding his sermon, and this is how he ends it. He says in verse 30, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, speaking of Christ, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. So according to Acts 17.30, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent or face the judgment of Christ. This was the message of John the Baptist, the message of Jesus, the message of the apostles, and it's the message God himself is preaching. This is the gospel. You must repent or face God's judgment. By the way, I like in Acts 17, God commands all men everywhere to repent. There's not very many suggestions in the Bible. Uh, there's a lot of commands, and this is one of them. This is not an option. And so I think we have established a fairly watertight argument that uh, uh, repentance is an essential aspect of true conversion. But what does it mean? What does it mean to repent? This is another thing that's debated. What, what does repentance look like? Uh, Thayer's Greek Dictionary gives this definition. It's the best I've seen of repentance. It says, The change of mind of those who have begun to abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces both a recognition of sin and sorrow for it and hearty amendment, the tokens and effects of which are good deeds. So in that definition, there's three aspects of repentance. It starts with remorse for sin, which uh, Thayer's Dictionary says is abhorring your errors, misdeeds, and that leads to a change of mind, a change of heart. That's where it says, uh, determined to enter upon a better course of life. And then the results of repentance, uh, which is said here to be the tokens, the effects of repentance, is a, uh, a change in behavior. In other words, sorrow for sin leads to repentance of the heart, which leads to a change in behavior. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians when he's, he's talking about a letter that he'd written to the church of Corinth that just blasted them for their sin. And, uh, and they responded with true repentance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. See, the sorrow leads to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. 
Verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So sorrow for sin produces repentance, this change of heart, and that leads to salvation. Repentance is remorse for sin. It leads to a change of heart, and if that change of heart is genuine, it will work itself out in a changed life. And this was the message of John the Baptist. Jesus is coming, and he will judge you for your sin. Therefore, repent. You must repent to be forgiven. And John makes it clear that it doesn't matter who you are. Repentance is a universal command. Look at verse 7. He says to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What a way to start a sermon. I thought about doing that this morning, walking up here and saying, you bunch of snakes. But... uh, I kind of wish I would have now. That would have been fun. But John, John wasn't being harsh here. He was pointing out their sin. He was actually being loving. It's only harsh uh, if the judgment isn't actually coming. If there is a coming judgment, the most loving thing you can do is warn people about it. And that's what John is doing here. He's telling them that they are in danger of facing the wrath of God on judgment day. And so it's only right that John should warn them in the strongest ter- terms. He's trying to point out their, their own sin so that they recognize it, and and then he urges them to turn from it in order to escape the coming judgment. We'll say more about this in a minute, but this is what he's saying to those who are coming out to be baptized of him. That's interesting. They're coming out to be baptized. They've heard him preach, and they say, yes, I'm going to get baptized. He says, well, first you have to repent. Baptism won't save you unless you repent. It won't do a thing for you just to get wet. You'll just be a wet sinner. Uh, It doesn't change anything. There's nothing mystical or magical about the waters of baptism. But you must repent. You must turn from your sin. So baptism without repentance is completely worthless. Don't trust in your baptism to save you if you have not repented. John continues in verse 8, saying, Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, or or, uh, evidence in keeping with repentance. Begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. I love how John says this. Begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to your father. Don't even go there. Don't even start to think that, John says. Salvation is not hereditary. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what your lineage is. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. Uh, for generations, it doesn't matter. That will not save you. Salvation is personal. You have to repent in order to have your sins forgiven. Does it matter if your parents are Christians? Does it matter if you were raised in church? Does it matter if you were baptized as a child or whatever else? The only way you can have your sins forgiven is if you repent. Does it matter if you say you're a Christian or even if you're a member of this church? That will not save you. Your membership at Lakeshore Baptist Church will not grant you access to eternal life. You must repent. The only way to have your sins forgiven is to repent. And John tells us, if you want to know whether or not you've repented, look at your life. There should be fruits. There should be evidence of repentance. That's John's whole point here. Don't think you've repented and have had your sins forgiven if there's no evidence. Verse 9. Now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. The axe is set right at the edge of the tree, Like the person's about to rear back and whack it down. And so John says, you can tell a tree by its fruit. This is the message of Jesus that he preaches uh, throughout the Gospels as well. 
Paul says the same thing in Galatians, where he lifts the fruit of the Spirit as they're called. Those are evidences that the Holy Spirit is in you. And you can tell what kind of tree you're looking at by its fruit. Uh, what would you think if you saw an apple tree with oranges growing on it? I don't know about you, but I would think that's not an apple tree, right? You can tell what kind of tree it is by the fruit that it produces. Uh, what would you think if you saw a good tree bearing bad fruit? Well, John says that's not a good tree at all. And so what would you think if you saw a Christian living in sin? John is saying that's no Christian. You can tell a tree by its fruit. You can tell if you've repented because there will be evidences uh, in keeping with that repentance. You cannot have a true change of heart on the inside without that changing you in real visible ways. Uh, salvation transforms people. And if you, you haven't been transformed uh, by the power of God in your conversion, then you have not been converted. And notice how John, he keeps bringing up fire. He says, uh, the tree that's cut down, that bad tree, that's going to be cast into the fire. The chaff that's separated from the wheat, that's going to be cast into the fire. Jesus is going to immerse people in fire. He keeps talking about this. And I know it's, it's not popular in our day to talk about eternal judgment of God in hell, but this is a reality in Scripture. Jesus talked about hell more than he did heaven. And I would be unloving as a pastor if I did not warn you that if, if you do not repent, you will face God's judgment, and it will be eternal. Verse 10, the people respond by, to John's strong message by saying, what shall we do then? What kind of fruits should we be looking for? Uh, elaborate a little on this, John. And John gives some evidences. First, he says, repentance is demonstrated by kindness to others. Verse 11, he answered and saith unto them, he that hath two coats... Let him impart to the one that hath none, and he that hath meat or food, let him do likewise. So this is just one example of the types of fruits that repentance brings in a person's life. Uh, that you are kind to others, that you're generous, that you're, you're willing to sacrifice for the good of others. Another one in verse 12, repentance is demonstrated by honesty and integrity. And then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? He said unto them, exact no more than that which has appointed you. I used to be very confused about publicans in the New Testament when I was a child. Um, I thought they were the opposite of Democrats, and that's, that's not the case. I also thought that Martin Luther King Jr. was a guy who nailed 95 theses on a door and said, I have a dream, before he got shot. I was very confused as a child. Uh, but there's not really an obvious segue back to our text. But anyway, uh, publicans have nothing to do with with politics. They're not Republicans, okay? A publican is simply an old English word for a tax collector. Uh, these were Jewish men who would, uh, basically they worked for the Roman Empire, uh, which is why they were considered to be traitors by their own people, because they, they were Jews under Roman oppression who, dis, who basically sold themselves to Rome and, and took the taxes of their fellow, their fellow Jews. And so they were hated uh, for their task. Tax collectors were also known for collecting the tax that Rome told them to and adding a surcharge that they kept for themselves. And so many tax collectors like Zacchaeus became rich by doing this, by basically cheating people out of their money, and so they were hated even more for this. And John tells them, don't use your job as a way to get rich at the expense of everyone else. That's why he says in verse 13, exact no more than, what, than uh, which, that which is appointed you. Don't add any uh, top fee there that you can pocket for yourself. So repentance is demonstrated by honesty and, and integrity. And then in verse 14, uh, repentance is demonstrated by humility and contentment. The soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, 
what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. So soldiers here, these are not necessarily people that would go out and fight in a war. These, we might call them policemen in our day. They're law enforcement. Uh, they kept the peace over the citizens. And, and John instructs them, do violence to no man. Literally in the Greek, don't shake anyone down. Uh, they would use their position as a way to, again, gain finances. They would intimidate people. They would threaten people. And it says here, don't accuse anyone falsely if... If they made uh, an arrest, they would receive additional pay. So this incentivized them at time to falsely accuse people so that they could get uh, part of the fine that, that, that was paid to the courts. So John tells these soldiers, don't threaten or falsely accuse people in order to make more money. Rather, be content with your wages. These are fruits of repentance. And there's many more that could be named as many more throughout Scripture. If you want a good example for us, look at Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Those are some good evidences of repentance. So John tells people to repent, and then he gives them uh, different instructions based on their life. So John is telling them, basically, look at your life, and do an evaluation of yourself, and look for those areas of sin, and then turn from it. Repentance involves different changes for each of us. We all have different sin patterns that we need to repent of, that, that we must forsake to be a true follower of God. And so... Ask God to search your heart and show you areas of inconsistency in your own life where you say you're a follower of Jesus, but then in these areas, you're really not. And then turn from those. Forgiveness of sins is offered to all who will repent. I love that in in this text. uh, Publicans and soldiers, these two hated groups of people, they are also offered God's forgiveness if they will genuinely turn from their sins. These men were considered traitors, as I mentioned earlier, men of ill repute, and yet God's grace is given to these as well. The call of the gospel goes out to all who will repent. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher uh, in England, preached a sermon entitled, Turn or Burn. And in it, he articulated the same message that John is preaching here. Everyone, regardless of your background, occupation, status, or lineage, everyone has a choice to make. Either turn or burn. Turn from your sin in repentance to God or be judged by Jesus and sentenced to eternal torment in hell. It is this bold message of repentance that we must preach to the world around us. And then verse 18 gives this concluding statement. It says, Many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. This was Luke's summary of John the Baptist. He preached the gospel, he pointed people to the coming Messiah, and he baptized people, which leads us to our next subject, baptism. So John's message was that everyone must repent and be baptized. What's the connection there? Uh, How is repentance related to baptism? Uh, First of all, let me just say this. Baptism does not do anything. It says something. The waters of the Jordan River did not somehow wash people's sins away in a a magical way. No, they simply demonstrated a change that had happened on the heart. And so being baptized was an outward demonstration of a heart attitude of repentance. And as we mentioned earlier, baptism would have been especially uh, humbling for a Jew to admit that just like a Gentile, they need to be, uh, they need to recognize their own uncleanness and unworthiness of God's grace and they need to repent. It was an outward expression of an inward change of heart, like a filthy person taking a bath and coming out clean. It's a way of demonstrating your commitment to turn and forsake your sin and live righteously. So baptism is is a, a way of showing that you are repenting. 
Now, when Jesus dies on the cross and rises again, baptism gets a few more elements added to it. Um, we know that as Christians, we, we demonstrate that we believe Jesus died and rose again by our baptism. And so uh, this is something my pastor used to do all the time. It's a little corny, but it works. So this is your water. This is you standing in the water. You notice it forms a cross. And when you go down into the water, you symbolize how Jesus died and was buried for our sins, and then he rose again, so you get back up out of the water. That's the symbolism of baptism. And so that's, that's something that, that basically gets attached to baptism after Jesus rises again. But in, in John's day, it was a baptism of repentance. Now, baptism didn't lose the repentance factor after Jesus left this earth. It, it retains that. So, in other words, Christian baptism is more today than John's baptism was, but it's not less. It still is a, a showing that you are repenting, that you are turning from your sin. Uh, we see this in verse uh, in Romans 6 is the most clear passage of this, that baptism is demonstrating not only that you believe the gospel, that, but that you are also committing to be a follower of Christ. It's showing that you have faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, and you're turning from sin to God. Uh, Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And there you see the identification with Jesus. You're affirming in baptism that you believe Jesus died and rose again. But also, just like Jesus came back to life, we are dying to sin and rising to walk in newness of life. That is what baptism says about you. It's a way of showing outwardly your commitment, not only that you believe the gospel, but that you're committing to be a follower of Jesus. And so, uh, baptism affirms that you believe Jesus died and rose again, and that you are dying to sin personally and rising to walk in newness of life. Uh, This is a statement kind of to summarize this. To participate in Christian baptism is to recognize your need for God's forgiveness through Jesus with a sense that you need to live differently as a response to it. And so that leads to our second question. Remember earlier we said, we asked the question, can you be a true Christian without repenting? And I think the clear biblical answer is no. You must repent to have your sins forgiven. The second question, can you be a Christian without being baptized? And this is a question that I don't think is worthy of very much discussion, honestly. It's sort of like asking, can you be married without kissing your wife? You know, could, could you go through the marriage ceremony and uh, say the vows and put the ring on, and then when the pastor says, you may now kiss the bride, you're like, nah, I'm good. I mean, maybe you could, but that would be a little odd, right? Wouldn't we all kind of scratch our heads and think, that's abnormal. What kind of a question is that? It's, it's the obvious expectation that if you're truly a Christian and if you've repented of your sins, of course you're going to get baptized, Most people, when they're seeking to answer this question of baptism, they immediately point to the one exception to the rule. And I've heard this so many times. Uh, The thief on the cross, right? This guy is dying by Jesus, and uh, and Jesus forgives him. He repents. Jesus forgives him of his sins, and he says, you'll be with me in paradise. Obviously, he didn't get baptized because he died like a few minutes later, okay? So he didn't have time to be baptized. 
So does that mean you don't have to be baptized and you're a Christian? Well, I guess if you die on your way to being baptized, maybe there's an exception for you. But that's not the reality for most of us. Never in the New Testament does someone uh, truly become, become a Christian and refuse to be baptized. And if the thief on the cross weren't in the process of dying, presumably he would have been baptized, okay? I don't think he would have refused that. And so we mentioned earlier that Peter preaches repentance to uh, the crowd of Jews on Pentecost. Look at what he says in in Acts 2, the end of that, that time, after he tells them to repent and be baptized. Verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Notice the, this is an exclusive statement. All of the people that received Peter's message were baptized. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved, and all 3,000 were baptized the very same day. Baptism is the immediate action of the truly repentant. By the way, this is one reason I would love for our church to get a baptistry soon that we can have right here. Because right now we do baptisms in the lake. I'm fine with doing that. But that limits uh, when we can do baptisms to, I mean, I'm sure the water's still probably freezing out there. Uh, And obviously we're not going to go out there in January and baptize somebody. So I would love for us to have a baptistry so that we can baptize right away uh, when somebody is ready for that. But the water uh, baptism does not save you. But being baptized is a way for you to tell others that you are saved. In other words, you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but saved people get baptized. And if this is hard to understand, uh, maybe an easy way to to think about this is if you've truly repented and you've given your life to Christ and, and his first command is be baptized, how can you refuse that? If you say, you're my Lord, you're my master now, and Jesus says, okay, get in the water, and you say no. Well, then you haven't truly repented. It's, it's giving evidence to the fact that you don't really mean what you say. And so if, if you refuse to be baptized, you should question whether you've truly repented. John the Baptist's message was to repent and demonstrate that repentance publicly by being baptized. And the conclusion to our text this morning shows that this message of repentance was the message that John the Baptist preached to everyone. There were no exceptions, including Herod. Verse 19, Herod the Tetrarch being reproved by him, speaking of John, for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for all the evils which Herod had done, added this yet above all, that he shut up John in prison. John the Baptist preached boldly against sin of all kind, including the sin of Herod. Herod the Great, the one that was uh, this Herod's father, he had been married ten times. And so Herod Antipas, uh, his son, followed in his footsteps with immorality and this is one case mentioned that we know quite a bit about from history. It was, uh, there was some incest going on here. There was also, obviously, uh, adultery. He, he divorces his wife. Herodias divorces uh, her husband so that they can be married. And John pointed out this sin. He called him on it, and Herod locked John up in prison for this. John's message was simple. Whether it was Herod, tax collectors, soldiers, or common people, everyone must repent. Repent and be baptized. God offers you forgiveness of sins through the coming Christ, but you must repent. Turn from whatever sin is in your life and give yourself completely to serve and follow the Lord. Those who heed John's warning will experience the grace and forgiveness of God, and those who refuse will be judged by Jesus. Jesus will either be your master now or your judge later, and the choice is yours. He came into all the country about Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham." Now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. People asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? He said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered and sang unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire." whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. I love our church. I love Lakeshore Baptist Church. Every time somebody asks me about this church, I brag on you people because I think you're some of the best people in the world. I really do. But I am not deceived to think that everyone in this room is necessarily a Christian. You can be a member of our church. You can be here every week. You can give financially to our church and be on your way to hell. And I understand it's very possible that someone in this room is headed for the judgment of God. You must repent. Repent or perish. That's the the message that Jesus preached. That's the message John preached. That's the message that God commands. Repent or face the judgment of hell. If you're not sure that you're truly a Christian, let me urge you today, give yourself to Christ. Turn from your sin. Place your faith in his death and resurrection. He will forgive your sins, but you must repent. And if you have more questions about that, if you, I certainly don't expect that everybody necessarily gets all the details of that. If you have questions or concerns about that, I invite you to talk to me. If you're a lady, you'd rather talk to my wife. Uh, We could both take the Bible and show you as long as you need. Uh, We'd love to talk to you about this. This is the most important message that I could possibly tell you. You must repent. If you're a Christian in this room, you've repented in the past, you've had your sins forgiven, and your life has been transformed, this message of repentance is still needed for you too. We all have things to be repented of, right? We all uh, are constantly needing to correct course. It's like someone driving a car on a highway. You can't just kind of sit back once you're going straight and the car will keep going. No, it, it always veers. Even if your tire alignment's perfect, right? Eventually, your car will start to veer off. And so what do you have to do? You take that wheel and you make those adjustments. And so as a Christian, you're constantly having to correct course. If you have known sin in your life, I would urge you to, be, to repent and be forgiven. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.